Well, I'll start today with a question, a rhetorical question. I'll then seek to explain. What does it mean to redeem something? I just want you to draw that to mind for a moment. In fact, I want you to think about it for a quick moment in not a biblical, not a Christian context, but just, just the word. What does it mean to redeem something? What is it to pay the redemption price? I ask that question because the study through the book of Ruth will bring to mind as one of its central themes the idea of redemption. In fact, the very specific passage we're going to dive into today is going to cover this idea of redemption and redeemer. So I've actually even titled this sermon, The Redeemer and the Redeemed, part one of two. (laughs) I expect that next week we'll do the second half of this idea of the redeemer and the redeemed. To redeem something, quite simply, is to buy or purchase something back. It's a little bit more so than when you go to the store and you pick out, let's say, a pair of shoes that you'd like to buy and you you buy that pair of shoes. You, you, You pay for those shoes, but you don't technically buy them back. You're not regaining what once was lost. The idea of redemption is to regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Galatians 3.13 takes this idea of redemption as it does throughout the whole Bible and into the New Testament. This passage says very clearly, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Next week, when we revisit more and more about the Redeemer and redemption price, we're going to see these things play out. But the whole story arc of the Bible shows us that as His creation, we belong to God. But as a result of man's fall, He has been enslaved to sin. You and I are slaves to sin in our natural state. And we are under the curse of the law. But God in his great love for us buys us back from under that curse. And the price that he pays is the blood of Jesus. So I want you to remember a bit about what's been going on in the book of Ruth so far as we think about what it means to redeem, a redeemer, pay a redemption price. The passage we covered last week was mostly in Ruth chapter 3. This is where Naomi gave the direction to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She told Ruth to go to Boaz in the middle of the night to see where he was to lay down and sleep, and then after he'd gone to sleep, for her to sneak on over and uncover his feet and lay down at his feet until he wakes up and wait to see what he would do next. Now, the reason she told Ruth to do this is because She knew that Ruth, being a widow and herself a widow, they needed to be taken care of. They needed someone to redeem Ruth out of her widowhood. Boaz was in the family line and was able to redeem her, would have been one of the ones who could do just that. And so she sent Ruth on this errand in hopes that God would show up and work through Boaz, and Boaz in his kindness would choose to redeem Ruth. Ruth kind of does a reverse proposal to Boaz when he wakes up in the middle of the night and she says, will you redeem me? So she's saying, will you propose to me? Will you make me your wife? Please do this for me. And Boaz responds in the affirmative. He says he will, in fact, do what it is that she's asking. This is going to bring us to the text. I want to read through the text. Then I want to pause and answer some questions about this night as we get to the end of the evening that's being talked about. I want to answer some questions that might come up. 
and then try to make it through as much as we can in the time that we have today through that passage. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14, actually, there. We're going to start in verse 14. I'll read that out loud. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to your relative, our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we read through this text, we know it's a story, a true story about an ancient event that on its face could seem meaningless to us unless we saw the ties that this has to all of redemptive history. So Lord, I pray you'd open our eyes to that. You'd help us understand these things. Father, I'm well aware that there may be people here today who who stumble over and see some parts of this text, this event, as as an obstacle in their understanding of of your plan of redemption. Lord, 
Lord, if it be in your will, help us to, help us to walk through those things. Help us to deal with some of the questions. Help us to have our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we pray often here, Lord. Speak into us that we may honor you and your, your word as we walk through it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, after I had arrived home uh, from preaching through the previous passage, the event where Ruth goes to Boaz in the middle of the night, we're having lunch, and, uh, and Bethany sat there and plopped open her notebook. That's my eight-year-old daughter. She typically sits through the service and, and takes notes and has questions, and, and at, at lunchtime, she just rattles them all off. It's maybe it's an English word, a definition of a word she doesn't know, or something about the event she would like help with. And as she was giving me her list of questions last week, Laura chimed in and said, yeah, actually, I had that same question. I've wondered that too. And I had to go, yeah, I've had that same question. I wonder that too. And so I thought that maybe it'd be helpful for us to quickly walk through uh, some of the questions you might have had about the event that happened just previous to this that wraps up in our text today. Now, real quick disclaimer I'm going to say before we dive in here. When the Bible does not give clear, specific answers to questions like this, we don't speak on it with the same kind of authority that we might when it's very clearly given. In other words, some of this is speculative. So I'm going to offer up some suggestions to you as to what might be taking place in the cultural backdrop of why this very weird event happened. I'm going to give you three questions that you might have yourself thought of, I've thought of, my family has thought of, and hopefully this will serve you well. The first question, why didn't Ruth approach Boaz in the morning? Why didn't she just wait? Like, Why the rush? Naomi comes up with this idea. She could have been like, no, no, just, just get your sleep. Tomorrow, go to Boaz and take care of this thing. She doesn't do that. She tells Ruth in the middle of the night to go, or at least go and wait until the middle of the night. And she's to hide in the bushes, as it would seem, and, and watch Boaz until he's done with his work, probably finished having a meal, maybe there with a bunch of other men who were also working in the field. And then he, she had to wait until she saw where he went to lay down to sleep. And Naomi's instructions were to go over to where he was after he'd fallen asleep. Why not just wait? Why not just have done this in the field? He might have approached her again the next day. Hey, Ruth, how's it going? Hey, Boaz, I'm glad to see you. An important question. Will you marry me? Like, why not just wait until the next morning? Here's what we know. Her approach was so unconventional, so forward for a woman. A public encounter would have been totally inappropriate. It may have even shamed Boaz. There were so many other factors that were already out of her control. We covered last week. She was a Moabite woman. Uh, she, she was not in the line of Israel. She was, she was a widow. She was probably freshly widowed. She was much younger than him. There were a bunch of things like this. She was a servant in, in, in the class distinction. He was, he was a, a landowner and had servants working for him. There's lots of ways it would have been weird. Those things were out of her control. There was no need for her to magnify the awkwardness with a public display where people could watch or observe, or even if she thought she was alone with him, for people to watch in on and see. Also, on the chance that this whole thing went south, it provided a way for Boaz, and for Ruth for that matter, to preserve their dignity and their reputation. I think that's possible. Later, actually in the text they just read, Naomi doesn't know how it's going to go. She says, how did it go? She doesn't go, so it went well, right? She, she might have expected that it would, but... but they didn't really know. They could have suspected, and so perhaps it could have preserved dignity for him and for her and the reputation of both if it didn't go well. 
that it wouldn't have been appropriate for her to discuss this matter amongst others where they could have seen in the public with everyone else. So that brings us to another question. Why not just wake him up? You might remember the story is that she's to go there, uncover his feet, and lay down by his feet and wait till he wakes up. That's, that's the idea there. Why not just nudge him? Hey, Boaz, no one's around. Can we chat? Right? It's a good question, I thought, when my daughter offered that up. Why wait for him to be startled? Now, for the record, Naomi's instructions were to uncover his feet and wait for him to wake up. It wasn't like wait for him to be startled. It wasn't that kind of thing. But she said, he'll tell you what to do after you uncover his feet. Now, last week we covered a little bit. There was a cultural thing that we just have to acknowledge. They had as a symbol for marriage proposal the idea of covering one with a cloak or a garment. I showed you some places in the Old Testament that refer to the same kind of idea. There's a covering is, a, is kind of similar to the kind of symbol, symbol like a wedding ring. We can imagine maybe a thousand years from now somebody saying, what does it mean to put a ring on someone's finger? And maybe a historian going, well, back in that day, they had rings that they would acknowledge a marriage in front of others, and an engagement ring would be an acknowledgement of a proposal. So it's that kind of thing. Nevertheless, she waited for him to wake up. One suggestion as to why she waited and just didn't just kick him, didn't nudge him, perhaps Ruth waiting for Boaz to wake up on his own in the middle of the night ensured that all other nearby parties would also be asleep. Just wait, just wait. Make sure it's silent, quiet, no one else is around, everyone else is snoring for whoever else could be around. And Ruth waiting on Boaz here, however you look at it, once again highlights her need for God to show up in a situation where she was otherwise powerless. Isn't that interesting? Rather than going and kicking and saying, let's have this conversation, it was going, what if he didn't wake up? She might have gone back to Naomi in the morning and said, God didn't provide an opportunity for us to talk before the sun came up. Uncovering his feet and waiting there, perhaps it was a way to rely just not on herself. God, if this is really, if you're in this, then wake him up and we'll have to have this conversation while she sits there nervously waiting for him to awake. Last question, why did Ruth lie by his feet? Why not stand there? Why not, why not lay next to him? Well, I think she lied down because she didn't know how long it was going to take. There was no expectation that he'd wake up in a minute or two. It could be all night long for all she knew. But why by his feet? Perhaps it was in order to display the purity of her intentions when Boaz woke up. So Boaz doesn't wake up to find a woman next to him, which one might think would be a reasonable assumption that she was trying to sleep with him if he's lying next to him right there. But by his feet, it would be clear that she had nothing sexual in mind. It's even like a, a servant. I, I'm, I, I'm beneath you. I, I'm below you. I'm appealing to you who's not on the same level as me in so many different social norms. And for him to look down and see her there perhaps was a way to preserve that. What if a person were to wake up and to notice her laying there next to him? It would almost certainly be assumed that they were sleeping together. By his feet, something clearly unique would be taking place. Now, I just offer up potential answers to those three questions. We have to let the word of God reign. Judge for yourself if those are convincing to you. But after the conversation, Ruth does wait there by Boaz's feet until the morning. Even after they're done conversing, he says, wait here. He doesn't go, come on, snuggle up next to me now. He goes, no, just wait there. And she stayed at his feet in that same place until the morning. There was some significance to that. And this is what happens next. So she lay, like I just said, at his feet until the morning. 
but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. You might remember when he woke up, back in the, in the last passage we walked through, he says, who, who are you? He doesn't know, because it was too dark out before one could recognize another. And before the sun has come up enough for the light to shine, she is to get up and to head out. Don't tell anyone. This is not to be known. Sends her out privately. She arrived in secret. Go out in secret, perhaps so no one would wonder what's going on. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Six measures. A lot of stuff on the commentaries on this one. No one knows exactly what it is. It's, it's kind of like saying, put in a pinch of salt. How much is that? Well, I mean, it depends on how fat your fingers are, I guess, you know, how big the pinch is. No one knows exactly what the measures of barley would have signified, but it sounds like it's a significant amount. That's, it's, most commentators think it was a good, healthy amount, not like here's a little sprinkle for you, but enough that she'd have to hold out a cloak, carry it. It's arguably more than what she got given back when she was offered from the field, Boaz, to take food back to her mother-in-law. It was a significant gift. She will be well taken care of. It might have even been seen kind of as a symbol of, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be okay. Blesses her. Verse 16 and 17 says, And when she came back to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi wasn't certain how the whole thing would pan out. Tell me, tell me, details, details. Now, he may not have given those Six measures simply as a gift. It's possible that he gave it to her to make it look like she had gone to get the grain rather than having spent the night with him. Maybe even the appearance of running an errand to prevent suspicions on the chance that someone saw her run away. It looks like she's just carrying grain. Maybe that's what it was. Nevertheless, don't go back empty-handed. Bring this to your mother-in-law. Care for Naomi. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz had told Ruth that he would handle the matter in the morning. It wasn't like, let's give this a week, let's let it settle in, let's think about it for a minute. We'll, we'll, it was, soon as the sun comes up, I'm going to go take care of this. Naomi takes Boaz at his word, presuming that Ruth had told her that part of the story and she expected that to happen. And Boaz ain't getting any younger. Remember, the, the idea was that he's, a, he's an older gentleman. He's probably a generation older than Ruth, the way that he talks to her. He calls her daughter repeatedly. Boaz is eager to redeem Ruth. He's going to make good on his promise. What Boaz does quickly, God does for us instantly in redemption. The promise that accompanies saving faith is surety of salvation. God will act and without delay. That means that no one who has genuine saving faith is waiting to be redeemed. The moment you believed, in the same moment, that redemption became yours. Romans 10.9, you guys might remember Romans 10.9. It's a, it's a verse that the Christians like to repeat. It's a beautiful verse about how we get saved and what must happen in order for us to be saved. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, your appeal will be brought before God and four to six weeks later you'll receive your answer as to whether or not he'll redeem you. No, you will be saved. 
You know what's, you know what's cool about this story? I didn't, I didn't realize it until this reading through, just this last week studying this. This is Ruth's last line in the story. She doesn't, she doesn't speak again. The verse prior to this. From this point forward, Boaz takes over. He's the lead role. This is the title character of the story, Ruth. But this is her final act. The lead role now switches to Boaz. He takes over. And the next chapter is all about what he goes to do for her. You know, your life story may be titled with your name, but Jesus is the main actor in your redemption. You know, this is how your testimony should sound, shouldn't it? Tell, tell people about, about your life. Someone's like, tell me your Christian testimony, your story, how, how you got saved, what happened to you in your life. It's your testimony. She, you know, this is, this is what I was. I was in darkness, and I was lost, and I was blind, and I lived in my own sin, and I was a slave to that sin, and I didn't want God. I wanted stuff, and I wanted what was good for me, and I wanted worship. I wanted what was, what was what in my best interest in my mind. That's what I was aiming for. I didn't care about God. I didn't love God. And then, Jesus and the rest of the story is about what he did. It's not about, and look at how good I am now. Look at how rich I am. Look at how healthy I am. Look at all the blessings I've got now. You too can have it if only you believe in Jesus. The main actor is now Jesus. He is the one. He's the one we point to. You and I are the redeemed. He is the redeemer. You know, for a long time after, after having a, a conversion experience in my adult life when I finally cried out to God. It's the only way I can call it is a converting experience where I heard the gospel all my life. Finally, as a young adult, just cried out to God. And I've shared that story here before, but for a long time after that, years after that, I felt very uncomfortable sharing my testimony with people who knew me prior to being saved. And the reason that I felt uncomfortable about it was wrong. I shouldn't have, but the reason I felt uncomfortable is because I was ashamed of the sin that those people had observed in my life. And for good reason. I should have been ashamed for the sin that those people had observed in my life. All the while when I would have called myself a Christian, for the record. And I didn't know that the testimony is of what God did, not well, look at me now. Now I'm finally not going to sin. Now I'm finally good. Now I'm great. I felt like it was hard for me to explain and walk through. And it wasn't until I, re- I learned biblical language on this and the way we talk about redeeming stories that the story is not about us anymore. It's now about Jesus. That I didn't go, need to go before someone and tell someone, now observe my life. It's okay. Go ahead and look now and you'll see. You'll see I'm a good guy now. But the story is about Jesus and what he has done for us. He is the ultimate Redeemer. I told you that I titled this sermon part one of The Redeemer and the Redeemed. It's hard to not see both. And sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. This is where this kind of business takes place, at the city gate. If you're familiar with Old Testament at all, you'll see this pop up every once in a while where some type of uh, exchange needed to take place, a legal exchange, a court proceeding, and there's a gathering in the city gate. That was the place where everyone would walk through in order to go about their daily business. 
That was the place that the elders of the city would know to come when there was going to be some kind of legal proceeding. And now we see another character finally show up, the one that's been talked about and referenced since chapter 2. There's another redeemer out there, and he's actually closer in the family line to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz is. And he's unnamed. There's no name given to this guy. He's just the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken. And it's actually, he's referred to as the redeemer for much of the rest of the story here, which is interesting because you'll see he doesn't actually redeem anything, but he's, he's the one in the position to be able to do that. He's just called the one who will redeem. I find it fascinating again how this is just one more pin in this story of God's sovereignty at work. Boaz waits and the near redeemer approaches. He sits at the gate. He sits down there and behold, it just so happens the Redeemer comes by. What if he was sick that day? What if he was traveling? What if he wasn't in town? What if he just didn't? What if he sent a servant in through town and not himself? What if he was in town and didn't have to come out? None of that even hits the story. God is working here, and this guy happens to just walk by, just as Boaz said, I will take care of I will settle this in the morning. And he doesn't go find him, doesn't knock on his door, doesn't wake him up. He waits until he arrives, and God works the man walks by. He calls out to him, not with a name, just come on by. God's not a passive observer here in history. He is the director of history. And he took 10 men of the elders, this is Boaz, took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he goes and gets the legal assembly needed for this kind of thing to take place. 10 elders came together That means that those 10 plus the two would be 12 present, 12 men standing there. Could be some kind of Israelite Jewish significance to the idea that 12 are there constituting a legal assembly of a kind of proceeding like this. 12 are ready. They're at the city gate. And once the witnesses are assembled, Boaz begins his appeal. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. This is the first time so far that any introduction is made or mention made of land regarding Naomi and Elimelech. And we have to pause here because this is really significant. Maintaining inherited land was a big, big issue for Jews. This is all over the Old and New Testament, particularly the Old Testament. The Old Testament over and over and over refers to this. In fact, when God says that he's going to bless the people, he tells them he's going to restore their land to them. And when he tells them that he's going to smite them, he's going to bring judgment on them for their wickedness and turning from them, he says he's going to take the land away from them. This is all over the place in the promises in the Old Testament. This was even built into the law that there would be ways for people to keep land in a family. I'm going to read out loud for you a passage from Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 20. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to read it. Hopefully it'll be helpful to give some context to what's happening with the idea of relative redemption of lost land. Here's how it reads. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. That just means permanently given over to somebody. For the land is mine, God is speaking, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, God says. So starting point for all the land understanding in the Old Testament is all that land is my land. 
I will do with it what I want to do with it. And one of the rules I have for my land is that you honor it in this way. And he continues. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So quick pause. A few things that happened there. If a man was poor and he couldn't afford to take care of his family any longer, he could sell off his land to someone who would buy it and then provide for his family. If he got money, if he somehow was able to get out of hard times and work himself back to be able to having the money, he could go back and redeem the land. And the one who owned it had to pay it back, had to, had to sell it back to him. He couldn't say, nope, mine now, I'm not selling. Er, not allowed here. Because the family inheritance land was more important to keep it in the family than that man keeping what had been his. Now, a fair wage had to be paid. Did you notice that? He had to calculate the number of years until the next jubilee, until the next period of time in which it would be given over to the family anyway. And he had to pay whatever that is. The jubilee was every 49 years. God said, just to reset the clock on all the land being dispersed, give all the land back to its ancestral family. All the land just goes back. It doesn't matter where it was, all of it gets returned. The year of Jubilee. It was a big festival uh, celebration. And that entire year, all the lands would be returned. So if you were going to buy a property and it was one year from the next Jubilee, it would cost a lot less because you'd only get one year out of it. You'd get a, a smashing deal. And it'd basically be like renting that property for the year until all of it would just return back to the original owners. And everybody would be reset. And if one rich guy out there is all frustrated that he's going to lose money on the whole exchange, listen, all the clans in Israel do this at the same time, so all the families will ultimately benefit from it in some way. And that's the way that God said, my land will be dealt with in such a way. Now it seems likely that based upon this, Elimelech, Ruth's husband who's passed away, probably sold that land prior to moving to Moab. His family had not been able to pay for what they needed in the time of the famine, and so he sold that land off. He might have even considered selling himself into a kind of servitude to take care of his family, but rather than that, decided to go to Moab and find more prosperous land. So at this time, the land is in the possession of whoever had bought it when Elimelech was still alive. Elsewhere in the law, the redemption order is also laid out. So, not, so, so do you guys get the idea of the way the land is supposed to go down the line? Now, the question would be, who might be a redeemer, a close relative who might step in and do that? Who's the one in charge of doing that? How does it work? What order should it go? Well, it makes the kind of sense that you'd think that it would. It goes in the close to out. It's kind of a concentric circle of relative. That's how you deal with this. Numbers 27, 9 through 11 explains how this would work out. If a man didn't have a son who could be the heir, and he didn't even have a daughter who could be the heir, this is how this works out. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. We know that Boaz was in the same clan as Elimelech, 
And yet there was still one nearer to Elimelech than Boaz was. Now, you may have already known those details about the way that Hebrew law worked out, but I think it's important for us to get the full picture of what's happening in Ruth. This was laid out in the law. This is what was expected. And while the people had been breaking all kinds of laws, it seems like some of these civil ones they maintained. One important thing to notice about what I just read to you, both from Leviticus and from Numbers, is that there is no mention of widows at all. That's not the way it works in our day, is it? If, if a spouse were to pass away, the other spouse legally gets all the inheritance rights to what that deceased person had. That's the way that it's legally designed to work out by default. There are ways around this, but that's the default way that our country looks at things. That's not the way it worked in Israel. I want to read to you a quick little something that I read in a commentary by Daniel Block. He does a really helpful commentary in the book of Ruth. He says this about this exact idea. This explains why a widow's lot in Israel was so precarious. With the death of her husband, she lost her base of support. And it also explains why Mosaic Law was so concerned to protect the widow, along with the orphan and the alien, from oppression and exploitation. That's why. That's why it's all over the place. Take care of the widows. Well, shouldn't they just get whatever their husband had lifted them? It didn't work that way. They were supposed to evidence and demonstrate their trust in God by being obedient to what he told them to do taking care of the widow out of the goodness of their hearts. And it was a test to see if they would, in fact, follow him. Often they didn't. Now, you also may notice right here in Ruth chapter 4, verse 3. Try to follow me here. This is, I think this is going to be helpful. Ruth was selling the parcel of land. You see that? Naomi, who has come, come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative of Lemuch. So how did that work out? I think it has to do with the word Selling. While it is used as selling, like literally trading something for, for goods or money in the Old Testament many times, it's also used many times not to refer to that kind of exchange. In fact, three times in the book of Judges alone, the, the book that comes right before the book of Ruth here, the word sold is used of God selling his people into the hands of their enemies. That doesn't mean that he exchanged them for money. It means a turning over of, a giving over of. In fact, this is, this is important to realize that the land was not in Naomi's possession. This is kind of the point. Nor did she have the means to acquire it. That's why Ruth had to glean from another field rather than immediately sell the property and live, live off the profits. It wasn't hers to sell. And it's why she needed a redeemer who could afford to acquire it. It wasn't hers. It needed to be bought back. That's the whole idea. It's undergirding everything that's happening here. The word sell or selling here then means that Naomi had officially delivered the news of her husband's death to the court and it made the people aware that there was land to be redeemed. In other words, what, means, what it means by selling here is that Naomi was officially requesting and calling for the redemption of the land. That's what she was doing. People might not have known Elimelech even had land that needed to be redeemed. They might not have known he had passed away. They might not have known that he wasn't going to be able to come back and get it himself. She made that public and was calling for the redemption of the land and was calling on a redeemer to do just that. And this is the news that Boaz delivers to the near redeemer. So I thought I would tell you of it. 
Boaz talking again, and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. There's no one to redeem it besides you. He's the only other one. He's the only other one who can redeem it in the order. There might be someone after Boaz, but there's no need for him to slow down the process and search out a nearer relative. Pause. Let's go make sure there's not a nearer relative. I'm telling you, I've already done that back work. You are the next one, and I come after you, and I'm willing to redeem it. Do you want to redeem it? That's why he's calling for it. And the man's answer is, I will redeem it. The near redeemer sounds like he's on board. He's good to go. Yeah, okay, I'll go buy the land. I'll do it. And everything seems good until Boaz drops this bomb on the near redeemer. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field, because he just said he was going to buy it, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Oh, by the way, the land comes with a wife. It's a package deal. And by the way, she's a Moabite. Oh, and she's a non-virgin. Oh, she's a widow. It comes with a mother-in-law. And that land you want to acquire will not be added to your estate. It's to perpetuate the name of Elimelech, not you. Hmm. So quick question. How, How did this work? This is the crux of the story. And when I say crux of the story, not the decision made already by Boaz, I'll do this, I'll make sure this is taken care of, but it comes down to what is a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. How does this work? How is it that he can say this? Can you and I even imagine what that'd be like? We find a house you want to buy. Oh, it comes with a, with a spouse. Uh, what? How does this work? Of course, this is built into Old Testament Law. I want to show you the origin passage of this idea. It's in Deuteronomy 25.5. I will put this one up because of its significance for us today. Let's read it here together. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So, real quick, let's look at this. Brother. Based upon the Ruth text, this duty could extend to other family members when a brother is unable to take on the task. And the word brother is oftentimes used to refer to the next of kin, but also relatives that come out from the center. But it's not just brothers. It's qualified by brothers who dwell together. I don't think this necessarily means they live in the same home. I don't think it necessarily means that. But it probably means that the family line in Israel and the land of Israel is what's most in mind, what's to be preserved. So when Ruth's husband died, when Malan died out in Moab, there was no expectation that Boaz or this other near redeemer should have traveled out of country to go find his deceased relative's widow. It doesn't sound like that's the expectation. It sounds like the family line here, the land here is what's in mind. So when brothers are together, are, are able to do this kind of obligation, this duty for one another, that's what was expected. 
to take her as a wife. Now, go into her is obviously trying to speak about kind of in a euphemistic language, to, to sleep with her, to have sexual relations with her that a baby may be conceived, and to take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So it's the duty of a husband's brother to marry and then, of course, bear children with his brother's wife. Now, just because I think it's really important to realize this, this is not just conceive, like go sleep with her, go make sure she has a baby, but care for her as his wife until death. This, this, this thing would fall under all the other commandments of the Old Testament of how a man ought to care for his wife. He's to do the duty of a husband's brother. Notice the word duty. This isn't a law. This isn't, this isn't a law. In fact, later in this, it'll tell how a man could get out of this and not have to do this if he so desired. Not just have a baby with her, but to make her his wife. I want you to note here Israel's profound care for women. Today, man, it's, you can almost, it's hard to look in a direction without seeing some modern cultural mention about the evils of the patriarchy or something like that. The idea that male headship or the, the concept of men desiring to provide for and protect and be the chief caregiver, chief servant and sacrificer for the women in their life is an antiquated and even awful or wicked thing. People in this culture look at that as such an awful thing. Ah, men thinking themselves wanting to sacrifice for ladies. Guys, I've even heard people try to open the Bible and point to, look at how, look at how mean the Bible was to women. That is not true. There is no religion that exists that does greater honor to women than the Christian faith. There isn't one. And all of that is rooted in this Old Testament. Man, listen, if he were to go, listen, go sleep, with, go sleep with her so she can have a kid, man, and then the kid will grow up and take care of her. A man might be like, okay. No, 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 no. You sacrifice the rest of your life to take care of her. You, you don't just go get to sleep with her. You care for her as a wife. You own her needs as your responsibility. God would hold accountable the entire nation to care for widows and orphans. It doesn't say this about widowers. It says it's about ladies. You care for the women. You lay your lives down for them, sacrifice, offer protection and care, and that is what is being expected out of a brother. This is the duty of a brother. Now, while the conceiving duty is not still present in our modern day, I do think that the idea of family caring for one another, I'm going to be there if someone passes away in my family to make sure that they're taken care of. Watch over my, my mother, even my father, my sisters. I, I believe I probably have a responsibility to watch out for my brother in that way, but more so to the women in my life. It's not woman dishonoring. It is exactly the opposite. And to teach that, and to, to preach that culturally is such a disservice to women and men in our culture. We don't get on board with those lies. But this, this duty continues. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's the big idea. It's the big idea here, that his name not be blotted out of Israel. They when they look back in the genealogies, his name would not be gone but that he will have contributed to the growing of the next generations. 
I'm one of uh, seven kids, but uh, my dad has two sons. Of, of the seven, two, two of us are sons by my father. I have half-brothers in that mix. My father is one of two sons. Um, his brother didn't have any kids, so my dad's the only Sanford male to carry on the name down to us. I'm, as it looks now, is probably, very likely, the only Sanford male in my generation to carry on the family name of the next one. I've got five kids, one of which is Gabe. He's our only hope. And my wife and I are both convinced that even if we feel led to have another baby, it'll probably be twin girls at this point, and we're okay with that. We, we love the girls. But um, he's the only one. You know, I'm not exercised by that at all. I don't feel any pressure on myself or on my, my boy. You gotta have some sons, Gabe. Gotta make sure that Sanford name lives on. I, I don't really feel that way. And I think the reason that I feel that way is it's not a cultural expectation for Americans, is it? Now, there are cultures in the world that still think this is really important, and that influences some of American culture because it's a melting pot here, but it is not the same. We, there's no way around this. We have to be honest. It's not like it was then, that kind of concern, that kind of care. So it's hard for us maybe to put our minds there to go, man, this would really be significant. Yeah, the Sanford name would be blotted out of America. And that was a real concern. And it was genuine. It wasn't something that was ever looked down upon. It was something that was constantly propped up as something that's important in that day. And the laws concerning land redemption did not necessarily include leveret marriage. I was this Deuteronomy 25 passages, leveret marriage from, from the Levi line, giving that law, the Levitical law, leveret marriage and land redemption. They were not necessarily combined. But Boaz conflates them into one. Did you notice that? He doesn't go, by the way, if you're so inclined, there's this, other, there's this woman that's hanging around too. And uh, you could just make it a twofer and get the land and the lady. No, he says, the day you buy the land, you also acquire Ruth. How does he, why did he say this? Because The passages I just read do not necessarily make those things combined together. Now, the near redeemer doesn't have a name, so let's call him Ned. <laughs> okay, just for, near redeemer Ned, just for the sake of conversation here. The people understood that if near redeemer Ned were to buy the land, then, and Ruth were then to get married to another man. So, so Ned buys the land, Ruth gets married, and subsequently has a male heir. That male heir can go redeem the land back out from underneath and take it back from, buy it back from, Ned the Redeemer. The child would bear the family name and would be eligible to redeem the land, greater in eligibility than even near Redeemer Ned. So these two obligations were being combined together in Boaz's day because they understood that it wasn't actually going to stay yours. And you'd still have to pay the full price for it all the way up until the next Jubilee because he, he had to assume that that's possible and he could pay the full price for it and then all of a sudden have to return that back as soon as that child comes of age and can go get it himself. So he understood rightly, and Boaz got it rightly. Listen, these aren't necessarily a package deal, but they kind of are. And certainly Ned thinks the same. Look at Ruth 4.6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I struggled over this. I was wondering, man, is, was, is, are we to see any virtue in this guy at all? Is this entirely selfless? Or is this virtuous? 
Is it a sincere concern? What's, what's going on here? Upon hearing this new information, the near redeemer is no longer interested. He was like, I'll redeem it. Sure, I'm in it. I'll buy it. I got the money for it. I can do that. He was ready to, ready to roll. And it does sound like it was him saying, I, I'll redeem it. And then he says, whoa, 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 wait, wait. I can't redeem it for myself. Not because I don't have the money. Not because I can't afford it. It sounds like he already could. Lest I impair my own inheritance. So this package deal comes with too much baggage for Ned. What does it mean that he's concerned to impair his own inheritance? You know, there's no guarantee to children. We know that. There's even less of a guarantee in this time frame, right? And even less to have a male heir. I'm not sure that would happen. There were men in the Bible who were said to have had multiple daughters and just never had any sons. Their daughter could be a redeemer, but she would eventually get married, perhaps, and then take on the name of her husband, and that could become problematic. If Ruth and the near redeemer were to have only one son, I think this is what's, what's in, in Ned's mind. If they were to only have one son, that son would inherit all that belonged to Elimelech in addition to Ned. Follow him? Two inheritances now would be merged into one. Those inheritances would be combined together, but would not be considered the estate of Ned, but the estate of Elimelech, because that's the name of which that man would now carry. So the near redeemer was unwilling to, to, to risk the merging of his estate with that of Elimelech, or to state in his own words, impair my own inheritance. Now, I was down at Temple Square uh, last year, and as I was doing street evangelism with some of the guys down that way, I ran into a couple of other guys with shirt, tie, tucked in. The shirts weren't white, so I was like, you're not, you're not LDS, are you? Walked up and started talking with them, and they had little tracks of their own, and I found out they were from a polygamist group. And they were there trying to, more or less, find wives. And I was like, well, I'm not doing what you're doing. <laughs> we're not together. Let's make it everybody knows. But we started talking, and at some point I said to them, I was like, hey, I just got to know, where in the world do you find biblical basis for a command to polygamy? We know polygamy is in the Old Testament. Where do you see it commanded to be exercised? And they go, oh, and they pointed to this exact passage. And the reason they pointed to this exact passage is because the man who I was, who's kind of the, the front-runner talker kind of guy, the, the one who's being the representative of them and speaking, he argued that according to Moses' instructions in leveret marriage, the Deuteronomy 25 passage we just read, according to his instructions, polygamy was an expected practice among law-abiding Jews and that they might have to add a wife in order to honor leveret marriage. So there you go. It's right there, he said. I actually think that this Ruth passage makes that extremely unlikely that polygamy is in view in leveret marriage. And because we live in Utah, and you might run into people like this, or you may have that in, in, your, in your, your thinking and the people you might deal with, I, I'm going to pause for a quick moment and explain why I think that's the case. Why is it that Ned is concerned and doesn't want to add Ruth to his life? The reason is because he obviously did not already have another son. It's the first thing we know. If he did, there'd be no problem about inheritance, right? That son would get all of Ned's inheritance. And the son who might come through Ruth would get all of Elimelech's inheritance. We're good. He didn't lose anything. None of his inheritance is impaired. 
He's multiplied the property that he can farm and produce money with. And each of his sons could get that inheritance. There wouldn't be an impairing of it. So he wouldn't have to be concerned at all. Likewise, if he could just add another wife, if polygamy avoided is in view, just get another wife, man. Have a, make sure you have a boy. If he could just add another wife to ensure he'd have a male heir with her, it would all be fine. He would go right back to that same situation. The, the heir through Ruth could have all that stuff, and the heir through one of his subsequent wives could have another one. It seems to me that the most likely reason this near redeemer is concerned about his inheritance being impaired is because he did not see polygamist marriage and subsequent children from an additional marriage as a valid option. Now judge for yourself whether or not you think that view is convincing to you. But as I view that, I can't find a way that an expectation towards polygamy would fit with the concerns our friend Ned voices here. So if someone says, why is polygamy not in there? says, Ned, because of Ned. <laughs> you can tell them. Judge for yourself. That's, my, that's, that's what I think is probably the case. I forgot to start my timer, so I don't know how far we are in, and I'm halfway through. <laughs> just, just telling you the truth here. This, for the record, is what's wonderful about expository sermons, by exposed verse by verse. I, I, can, I can land the plane here, and I will. And we'll just pick up next week, right where I left off, okay? We're going to do that. <laughs> so we forget the next slides. Here's a question that I have to ask when we get to this point. Ned's concerned, regardless of whether or not my, my, my presumption about polygamy not being here is valid, regardless of that, no matter what, both these men are in the same position, aren't they? Ned's concern is that his inheritance will be impaired, and no one steps in or argues with him. It's probably a valid concern in some way. And if it is, doesn't Boaz stand on the same footing as does Ned? Of course he does. In other words, if Boaz does, as he's planning to do, take the land and Ruth and have a child with Ruth, what happens to his inheritance? It's forever impaired. It remains in the clan. He's in the clan of Elimach, but it merges. I think, again, this is a place we see virtue in Boaz. He's called a worthy man. He's a man with a good reputation. He's a man who praises Yahweh God. He's honoring the laws of Yahweh God. He's honoring the duties and obligations that he didn't have to, but he could. He didn't need to prompt anything. He could have let someone else take care of all this, and he steps in, and he knows the stigma, at least potential stigma, that could be on a Moabite widow, maybe under the judgment of God because her family left Israel rather than remaining true to the land. There's all kinds of ways that we might expect there to be stigma on this woman. And he says, I'll, I'll, I won't let the day finish until I redeem you. There is no mention in Boaz of his concern of loss. And if you're the scrutinous type like I am, you might be thinking, maybe he's really old and he's thinking this is his last shot. That, that, that's, that might be the case too. But God will grant this man a lasting inheritance. An heir of Boaz will sit on a throne forever. He will be the king of kings and lord of lords. 
And in God's goodness and in his redemptive plan, he so chose to include in that story of redemption an event, a, a little time frame. We don't know the exact dates even. We just know it's in the time of the judges where, where this one man lived in a single lifetime and operated as a redeemer who eagerly stepped in where a person may have been astigmatized by all kinds of bad things and said, I'll redeem her. And he doesn't seem reluctant, does he? With no thought to good for himself, he says, I'll redeem her. You and I, if you are in Christ, you have been redeemed. You have been bought back. And wherever we see hero-like characters in the Old Testament, particularly right here, these hero-like characters, Ruth was a hero character in the first chapter, second chapter, we see a change here in, in, in this chapter, chapter 4. Boaz is taking the lead as, the, as the, the hero of the story. There's a couple of heroes here, and both of them pale in comparison to the hero that Jesus is. And I'm landing here, and I pray that as we close, that will be something that compels worship in you this week. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for your word. Oh, I love the words. I love all these words. Oh, it's so cool, God, that we can read these things from these ancient days. And we can pick every little part of it and, and see meaning and significance and hopefully be served by it. We ask for that all the time, Lord. Lord, let, let this word serve us, be a servant to us. Let us love it. Let us desire to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of it. Lord, as we worship you this week, I pray that we would, we would have in mind that we are worshiping you as redeemed people, worshiping a supreme redeemer. Father, you chose to work salvation out in such a way that you would be shown to be a redeemer of those who were lost. Let us never forget the significance of that and worship you specifically because of it this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.